0: I'd like to give you a warm welcome to Simply Jesus this month, a particularly warm welcome to Peter, Peter Maycock, who's going to be speaking to us later on, on the subject of the Great Exchange. Now, what we do normally at this time is we answer a question based on the previous month's talk, and what we'd like you to do is, if there's something that comes to mind that you want answered, what we'll try and do is to answer that in the next month. So if you look at the next slide, you'll see the question we have for this month, and also at the bottom, a text number. And we'll put that on a slide at the end. So if there's something that comes to your mind, you want to know what the answer is, then why not text it in? And we'll try and answer as many of those as we can in a couple of minutes. So the the question we've got this month, because we talked about Lazarus rising from the dead, was, do you really think it happened? Well, you'd expect me to say yes, wouldn't you? But why do I think that? Well, it's actually not, it's actually quite a good question because the only place we hear the story of Lazarus is in John's gospel. And you'd think if it was such a big event, all four accounts would have clearly headlined it, but they didn't. So, was it something John included to exaggerate? the point or did it really happen well it wasn't the only time Jesus raised people from the dead in fact there's two other instances recorded by other um, writers so there was a a widow's son was raised and Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead so on one level we can say that this was not an unusual event And the fact that John didn't include these, he says he didn't include everything. Lots of other amazing things happened. And if the Son of God genuinely came to earth, you would expect lots of amazing things to happen. I read one commentator who suggested he may have raised several other people from the dead. We just don't know. They weren't recorded. But why did John choose to include this particular story? Quite apart from the fact that it was an amazing thing that happened. Well, it's integral to what he was saying. Because what happened after Lazarus was raised from the dead, it got everywhere. It was the big news event that went on. Everybody was talking about it. Which is why we get this huge triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Why everyone was so excited because of Lazarus. Everybody was talking about it. That was the thing that happened. And that was the trigger point for the authorities to say, we've got to get rid of this man. And we need to get rid of that man, Lazarus, too. So for John, it wasn't just the miracle. It also explained what happened next. So it wasn't an accident he put it in there. It wasn't something for effect. But that's not the only reason I believe it. You see, over time, I got to know this man, Jesus. I read some of the things that were written about him. I met the people who followed him. And as that evidence came together... I came to believe in who he was, and as a consequence, became to believe those accounts of his life. And I encourage you to do the same. Don't take things on face value. Test them. Ask the questions. Investigate. And I'll hope you'll find the same answer that I did, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Right. Over to a reading now from Anne. Thank you very much
1: readings from John's Gospel chapter 19 starting at verse 1 then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying hail King of the Jews and they struck him in the face once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews look You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin from then on pilate tried to set jesus free but the jews kept shouting if you let this man go you are no friend of caesar anyone who claims to be a king opposes caesar when pilate heard this he brought jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified.
0: At this point we watched a clip from the Disney animated film The Lion King. The young lion cub Simba is told by his uncle Scar to wait in a valley for a surprise. After Scar has climbed out of the valley he instructs his hyena crew to start a stampede of wildebeest through the valley. Scar then sets off to tell Simba's father, Lion King Mufasa, that his son is in danger. Mafasa bravely races through the stampede to save his son, but when he turns to Scar for help, he is betrayed and falls to his death.
2: Well, good evening, everybody. Long live the king. My apologies for showing that clip on Father's Day. Um, But uh, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? It's powerful stuff and the music and the the imagery and the story. And uh, by the way, if you didn't know, I found out this week that film, Lion King, was released 25 years ago uh, this last month. So make you feel old if you're that old. Uh, But 25 years ago. And I wonder whether some of you were sat there just now thinking, what on earth is the connection between uh, the reading that we just had from John's Gospel and uh, why am I now showing you Disney cartoons? Well, there is a good reason that I chose to show that little clip tonight, and it's not just because it is Father's Day, it's not just because uh, The Lion King is a great film, um, but uh, a couple of years ago, there was a survey uh, in a number of newspapers, and they chose that scene, those four minutes and 20 seconds you've just watched, as the most iconic death scene in film the most iconic death scene in film. If you want to Google it later tonight, it's a bit depressing to look down the list if you've seen the films. Um, but, it, but I think a lot of us would agree that is a very powerful moment in film as Mufasa, Simba's dad, dies in that, in that scene. And I wonder if I was to ask you what is the most iconic death scene in history, what you would reply, what kind of names we might come up with around the room. You might think, um, I don't know. Perhaps of Nelson at Trafalgar, perhaps of Abraham Lincoln shot down in the theatre, JFK shot in his motor car, Princess Diana in Paris. Number of deaths we might think of, but probably if we we wouldn't need to talk for too long before we got to Jesus and said whatever our view of Jesus, whatever our faith or lack of faith. The death of Jesus is surely the most iconic death in history in terms of uh, the impact it's had on the world, the art that surrounds it, the architecture, the, the folks who remember that death. And surely we'd want to put Jesus at the top of any list. And actually, if you Google that list, you do find Jesus on that list as well. But I think as we are here looking and thinking about simply Jesus, it is both helpful and quite unhelpful that Jesus' death is so famous and so much talked about and spoken of and, uh, and, and thought about because it's hard for us to sort of put apart the fact from the fiction, the fact from the stories which grow up and the things that people think of and talk about surrounding the death of Jesus. But tonight, we've gone back to the original sources, as Peter was saying very helpfully. Um, John, we think John was, was there at Jesus' crucifixion. And so what he's written and the report that we just read from the trial of Jesus is the original source. We're going right back to uh, somebody who was actually there. And what I want to do just for a few minutes this evening is to use the video clip we just watched to help us think a bit about the death of Jesus, and perhaps think a bit differently than we have in the past, and perhaps to spark questions. And the, the text number will go up at the end again, and we want you to send in questions that you might have as I'm speaking. If you're thinking of things I'm saying just don't make sense, then do send in questions, and Peter will answer them next time uh, you're here. But I want to start with this question, though. Thinking about the video, thinking about the Lion King, i ask you this question. Why did Mufasa, that's the, the big daddy lion in there. Why did Mufasa die? Why did he die? I'm not actually asking you to answer. You can shout out if you like. Uh, but I think the most obvious answer to that question is he died uh, because of the wildebeest stampede, right? He was crushed under the hooves of those hundreds, perhaps thousands of wildebeest that were stampeding through there. And that was, that was, that's what would be on the death certificate, right? died in a, in a stampede of wildebeests. That would be quite, quite something to have on your death certificate, wouldn't it? But that's, that's how he died. We'd say, why did he die? Well, because of the wildebeest. But then we could push that just a little bit further and say, well, actually, as we saw there in the clip, Mufasa died because there was a plot to kill him. So Scar, his younger brother, by the way, if you've never seen The Lion King, Um, and you think there's a lot of spoilers going on here. I think there's enough left of the film, you could still watch it usefully. So just so you know that. Uh, But his younger brother Scar and those hyenas, they hatched the plot to kill him. And so they set up uh, Simba in the valley and they set up Mufasa to come and to be killed by the wildebeest. So we could say, well, Mufasa died because of his enemies, because of that plot to kill him. Those powerful enemies who wanted him dead, wanted him out the way, so that Scar could then take over his kingdom. So why did Mufasa die? Yes, because of the wildebeest. Yes, because of his enemies. But actually, we can go a step further. We can go deeper, and I'm sure you wanna go deeper uh, on an evening like this, because we could also say Mufasa died because he saw his son, Simba, in trouble. He saw his son at risk. And he wanted to save him. Someone dear to his heart was at risk of mortal danger. And so Mufasa threw himself into that stampede to save him. Ultimately, we could say Mufasa died for love. He died to save one he loved. Now I don't know how much of the death of Jesus you know, perhaps quite a lot, um, but you certainly would know that Jesus died on a cross. He died 2,000 years ago, and we read his report of his death in the Bible. And if we ask the same question of Jesus, why did Jesus die? That's the subject this week: is is the death of Jesus. It's not a particularly cheery subject, but it's at the centre of Christian faith. Why did Jesus die? Well, we read just now, we heard read, and saw it on the screens. That in John's report. Jesus was put on trial by the Roman authorities. He was handed over to the Roman soldiers, and they took him off, and they crucified him. They nailed nails into his hands and his feet, and he hung on a cross until he died. So we could say, why did he die? Because the Romans killed him. The wildebeest ran him over. That's why he died. But of course, as with the Lion King, you're already ahead of me, I can see you, you're ahead of me. He had enemies, Jesus had enemies, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day, the teachers, the legal experts, and they had set him up just as effectively as Mufasa was set up, so Jesus was set up to be in just that place where he would be accused of just the right things, of, uh, bowing out, of claiming himself to be king, and Caesar was king, and he knew, they knew just what to say so that the Roman soldiers and the Roman governor would condemn him. So why did Jesus die? Because the Romans killed him. But actually, because he was set up. Because he had enemies, powerful enemies, who wanted him out of the way because he was disrupting their way of life. He died because of his enemies' carefully laid plans. But here's where the two stories start to diverge and become very very different. I want to take you to one particular point in the story that we read from John 19, something which I found fascinating. Five little words are in the middle of this passage that we're just going to think about for a moment. Come with me into the story. Jesus, it's the last few hours of his life. He's facing trial, physical abuse. He's been mocked, he's been scorned, he's been whipped. Crown of thorns on his head, crowds shouting for his death. There's dust and dirt and jeers and blows raining down on him on all sides. But Pilate, the Roman ruler, he's sympathetic to Jesus. Actually, he wants to let Jesus go. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He says again and again, I find no charge against this man. And then there's something extraordinary that happens. It says in the Bible reading in, in verse 8 that Pilate is afraid. And that's absolutely upside down. should not be like that. Jesus is the one on trial, not Pilate. And yet Pilate is afraid. And he turns to Jesus and he asks him this question. We're in verse 9. He says, where do you come from? He asks Jesus. And then there's the five words that I've just been struck by. Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus gave him no answer. Here's Pilate, the man who could save Jesus' life. And Jesus will not answer him. He will not cry out for help. Now, we saw it on that big screen just now. Mufasa, on the rocks, desperate to save his life cries out to his brother help me Scar help me and we didn't work out well for him but he's desperate to save his life but what we see with Jesus is somebody willingly walking to death not fighting to save his life but willingly going to the cross and to death why don't you defend yourself Jesus why don't you fight back and Jesus doesn't Jesus gave him no answer. Now that doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any sense. We may be able to comprehend a little bit what it might be like to face death or mortal danger. I did that just a few weeks ago. Camping in Herefordshire with my kids, walking across a field on a marked footpath, a hundred, this is very close to my heart, what we saw there. A hundred cows in the middle of the field, lying down, looking perfectly. As soon as we walked into the field, they stand up. Then they start moving slowly towards us. And there I've got an 8-year-old, 11-year-old, 13-year-old. We're trying to navigate our way around this field, and these cows start coming towards us. And they're walking. Walking's fine. Then the one at the front starts to run. Now they're running at us. We can hear them. You can hear the ground shaking. We, we, run, we get into some trees. They come into the trees after us. We eventually um, manage finally to get to the edge of the field and it, just get over a fence before the cows are right on us. It's a near-death experience. They weren't wildebeest, but they were near enough. But we might, we, I'm sure we know, something like that, experience of facing danger. We can, we can understand that kind of thing. We can understand the wildebeest or the Roman soldiers. We can kind of understand the experience of being betrayed. Now, Mufasa was betrayed by his brother. Jesus was betrayed by the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day. And we can perhaps in our own lives experience and understand something of what that feels like to have someone let us down or betray us. But what we see in Jesus, giving Pilate no answer, willingly going towards certain death. Now that is not something I can comprehend or begin to understand. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus chose death so that we can find life. Jesus had said a few chapters earlier in John's Gospel, 10 verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus knew that for us to have that life, he needed to lay down his life for us. He didn't die like Mufasa did or others might do in a cow stampede accidentally. Jesus deliberately laid down his life for us because he died, I, we, you can live. And that is the great exchange. It's not a maths equation, it's not a scientific formula. We can't understand all of the ins and outs. It's not like an exchange of money or a token we take into a shop to get something back. We can never fully understand what happens on the cross, but we can know this, that because He died, I can live. I want to tell you two quick stories before we finish because uh, sometimes we might hear talk of Jesus dying and us living and think it's all very well, but it's very far off from us. It's very remote and distant. I want to bring it home, personal and relevant to us here tonight. I've got a friend who for many years has suffered from a debilitating liver um, condition, and his liver about three years ago began to fail completely. He was very seriously ill. He was in hospital here in Birmingham and he had several illnesses, several operations and the doctors told him, this is it. Your only hope now is a liver transplant. Nothing else will save you. And the trouble is, there's a very long list to wait for a transplant. A liver transplant is a complex procedure. You need exactly the right type and so on to match with you. It may not happen in time that was three years ago amazingly just a few weeks after he went on the transplant list he was offered a transplant he had to go straight into the hospital that day had the operation recuperated for some months and today he says he feels better than ever he feels better than ever with this new liver but there's something he said to me which has really stuck with me He said this of course for me To live, someone else had to die. For me to live, someone else had to die. And I think about that every day. You can't survive without a liver. To have a liver transplant means somebody else has died. For me to live, someone else had to die. And that story really struck a chord with me because it reminds me of my own journey. When I was 18 years old, not far off when that film came out, I knew a lot about Jesus. I'd read quite a bit of the Bible. I'd even prayed. I remember when I was 10, praying before I took the 11-plus exam. I was down in Reading looking at the grammar schools, and I prayed. I said to God, if you, if you let me pass this exam, I'll do all sorts of things. I made that, made that deal with God. Now, I passed the exam. I never did what I'd promised to do, so I, I didn't hold up that end of the bargain. It wasn't real to me. Church when I was 18 was utterly irrelevant. God was perhaps interesting but not not real and didn't mean much to me at all, nothing to my daily life. And then at the end of my sick form I was invited by some friends at school on a trip in the summer to South Africa. And I had never been on a plane, I had never been out of of the country, school trip to Belgium aside. I was really excited about this trip. Now, everybody else on the trip were, were Christians, committed Christians, and I wasn't too excited about that, but I thought, well, you know, measure it, it's a trip to South Africa, you know, who, who, would, who would pass that up? So I went, got on the plane, not really knowing what I was heading into. And actually, at the time, if I'd known what I was heading into, I probably would not have gone because what I saw in South Africa changed my life entirely. Up to that point my impression of Christianity was something intellectual, dry, theoretical, boring, dull. But when I got to South Africa, we went to the townships around Cape Town and what I saw was Christians and churches whose lives were on fire for God, doing things that were utterly unreasonable, that made no sense at all, taking risks that just brought no reward to them, made no sense to me. We met a a wonderful black pastor who was married to a white lady leading a church in an Afrikaans town. When he'd moved in, he'd had stuff posted through the letterbox, he had racist abuse flung at him, and he was still there, faithfully ministering in that town. We met middle-class Christians working in a daycare centre for kids so their mums could go to work. We met a team, went with a team who visited a youth um, detention centre with kids who'd been in prison for murder at the age of 10. And day after day, I was just amazed at what I saw. And night after night, I went back to our youth hostel and argued with my friends about the Bible. I had, I had a list this long of stuff that was impossible, that couldn't be, contradictions that I thought were all over the place. And, and I just argued with them night after night until one night I came to the decision, to the realization that if God is real, if Jesus is real, if the Bible's record is true, as these people around me clearly thought, then the whole direction of my life needed to change. If Jesus had died for me to allow me to live, then I want to live for him. And that, since then, that's what I've been trying to do, more or less successfully, depending on the day of the week. And so we come back sort of full circle to the Lion King. Because for many people, maybe for some of us here tonight, I don't know, the death of Jesus sort of sits in the same category as the death of Mufasa on that screen. It's a sad death. It's even iconic, maybe. Long ago, without any relevance to me, my family, my school, my work, my career, my future. But for me as a Christian, we believe that in the death of Jesus we find life. And that's a message that's not only life-giving, it's life-transforming. And so, if you are here today, and you're in that position of sort of watching on from the outside, as if you're at the cinema looking in, then can I encourage you not to let the story end here, and not to let this this, uh, story finish tonight, but to ask the questions, and to ask the questions again and again, until you find answers that you feel satisfied with. The text message will be on the screen later on, and we can use that to ask a question. But let's hear the invitation, whether we know a lot about Jesus or not very much, to explore more about him. What do we have to lose? At the end of the clip we saw, Simba was utterly gutted, devastated. One of the reasons he was so devastated is he thought it was his fault, and he blamed himself for his father dying. His whole world had collapsed around him. And actually, that's exactly how Jesus' followers thought and felt when Jesus died, when he was crucified. They didn't understand yet that Jesus had to die so that they could live. We're going to celebrate, or we celebrate every year on Easter Sunday, how three days after Jesus died, he rose again from the dead. And so... For me to live, someone else had to die. There's a phrase that has just stuck in my mind since my friend first said it to me. We're going to sing again, O oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. And as, before we do that, let me just pray um, for a moment and then uh, the band will lead us in our song. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for us, that you lay down your life that we might have life. Lord, would you help us to ask those questions that are on our mind? Would you help us to explore and to continue to explore more of Jesus as we think of him tonight? We pray in his name. Amen.